Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of Humankind, and I love my work, the opportunity to talk with remarkably enlightened people about things that really matter to all of us. And honestly, the most fun I have is when I hear from listeners I've never met, often from places I've never visited, who've been touched by our Humankind program. The grants we get from the funders you hear named on our program simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep the program and this podcast going. Please visit humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. The works of mercy, the work of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked and sheltering the harborless, visiting the sick and visiting the prisoner and burying the dead and so on, the means by which we are to be judged by how we have contributed to our fellow man. The extraordinary life of Dorothy Day, journalist and founder of the Catholic Worker Movement. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Pope Francis addressed a joint session of Congress in September 2015. He honored the lives of four Americans, President Abraham Lincoln, civil rights icon Martin Luther King, theologian Thomas Merton, and Dorothy Day, the writer and activist. Dorothy Day, who died in 1980 at age 83, is best known as founder of the Catholic Worker Movement, which served the poor and advocated for justice. Her granddaughter and biographer, Kate Hennessy from Vermont, tells the story of Peter Morin, a Catholic priest from France who traveled to the United States in the early 20th century and became an inspiration for Dorothy Day. My grandmother was a journalist, and um, she had a lot of experience in, in laying out a newspaper. She knew how to do it from beginning to end. And so basically what she heard Peter saying was, you need to start a newspaper. And which she did immediately. And um, within. And, and he wasn't particularly saying that at all? No, he was just saying, please publish a broadsheet of my easy essays. <laughs> and uh, which she did. I mean, she, she did publish his easy essays, but she also wrote a lot of other articles that were covering the events of the times. Now, this was in 1933. And, of course, the height of the Great Depression. And the, the U.S. was in huge turmoil at that time. There were so many things going on, hunger strikes, um, strikes of every nature, people just going through horrific conditions. I think a fourth of the public was unemployed. Yes. New York City alone was just inundated of, of um, huge numbers of, of the unemployed and the homeless. And so she was, as a journalist, she wanted to report about this. And um, so that's how the paper started. From that point on, it just was, was not what they intended. My grandmother always said they did not intend to start a soup line. They did not intend to open up houses of hospitality, that this just happened because of what they were writing about. People started showing up at their door saying, we need help. And so my grandmother was like, well, sit down. We have, we have more soup on, on, 
the stove and then, you know, had to find apartments to put people up and it just grew and grew and grew. Once I built a railroad, made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? Once I built a tower... The soup lines sometimes extended to a thousand people lining up in New York? Yes. Um, when they became quite well-known, by 1936, they had moved into a, a building uh, down in Mott Street in Little Italy, and um, which w- turned out to be a wonderful neighborhood for them to be in. And that's the neighborhood that my mother grew up in. But um, there would be days in which the, um, the line would extend all the way down Mott Street for several blocks and, and it would start early in the morning you know, at 5 o'clock in the morning, and the men would uh, build fires in, in the um, garbage cans to, to keep warm as they waited, you know, for the soup line to open. So it really, um, it, it was a huge need at that time. I'm your pal, buddy, can you spare a dime? Dorothy Day, speaking at the State University of New York in 1966. When we started The Catholic Worker back in 1933, it's an eight-page tabloid paper. Comes out once a month, always late. We never have charged more than one cent a copy. And it deals with the problems of the day. We took the paper from the very first issue out on the streets and sold it on street corners. The fellows and the college students have come to help us still to this day go out and sell it. And over and over again, as I travel around the country, I'm have people come to me and say, oh, I bought a copy of the paper in front of Grand Central, or I bought a copy of the paper up in in, uh, by Macy's, and so on. And they get to know the people who sell it, and they get to know the people who get it out. It's a paper which deals very personally with the issues. Uh, The people that joined us were young people just out of college at a time when there was great unemployment. So they came and lived, had subsistence. There's never been any salaries paid but lived together in a small community. And that community grew from the storefront and a few apartments to a large house on the west side, and then finally down the east side in this old tenement house that one of our readers had given us the use of. Dorothy Day came to journalism partly through the influence of her father, John Day, a newspaper man in Chicago where the family lived for a time. Later in New York City, Dorothy worked as a writer and as a way to practice her faith. She served the community that was attracted to the Catholic worker. They'd always get these wonderful people who would come in. Kate Hennessy, the youngest of Dorothy's grandchildren, authored a family memoir, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. There was one time um, my grandmother supported a seaman's strike. And what that meant is, she said to the seamen who are on strike, come to the worker, we'll feed you, we'll house you. And out of that, this is in 1936, out of that, a small group of very important men became part of the Catholic worker. They came and they stayed for the rest of their lives. And uh, they brought with them a huge amount of skills of how to cook for big numbers, you know, how to farm. Um, there was a saying, scratch a seaman and you'll find a farmer. Um, <laughs> So there was this, this, this small group of people that really um, took on the tasks 
that were presented and started baking bread and making soup and making coffee, they always had coffee. No matter how poor they were, they always served coffee. And uh, they were known for serving the best coffee. So it, it kind of built on itself. Yes, and it took off very quickly. Um, it's quite extraordinary. The, the paper um, went from a first issue of 2,500 to, by 1936, it was about 160,000 and sometimes going up to, I think there's one issue, it's 190,000. So this was, you know, the ideas um, caught on like wildfire all around the country, and places, Catholic workers opened up in other cities um, early on. In terms of the the actual work, I mean, the paper was the voice. It was my grandmother's voice, though she did then start almost immediately to be invited to speak um, to a lot of um seminaries, to high schools, to, to a lot of groups. And so there's something about um, what she was doing really caught people's imaginations. So did the pages of the Catholic worker reflect this blend of social consciousness and spirituality that had absorbed your grandmother? Yes, yes. Though she was always... Um, she was always a journalist. I mean, she, she viewed her work as a writer, and she always believed that The Catholic Worker was a paper um, for your basic reader. Um, it wasn't for theologians. You know, she, wa- she didn't want the paper to be written by priests, um, academics. She really wanted it to be a, a lay paper and very much focused on the here and now. She was covering strikes. She was covering workers' conditions. She was very much concerned with that. She was covering events in the South with segregation. Um, these things, she was, cover- she was covering what was happening um, in Germany, you know, what Hitler was doing um, early on, way before the war, that the U.S. joined the war. So she was really keeping a, a close eye on all the events uh, of the times. I think that has, that tradition has continued. Um, the paper still is very much involved in covering what's happening happening in Syria, in Iraq, with refugees. There's a lot of people at the Catholic Worker who is very who are very involved in, in these issues. So they really are keeping um, an eye on the issues of the day. Day sought to follow her Catholic faith, not abstractly, but by living among needy people she wanted to help. Her mentor, Father Peter Morin, had studied the life of St. Francis of Assisi, who saw performing labor as a gift to the greater community, and who advocated the way of peace. Dorothy Day from 1966. Peter Morin was opposed to all coercion, all violence. He felt that that uh, to follow the example of Christ himself, who presented his doctrine to be accepted or not to be accepted, to think in terms of the Beatitudes, to think in terms of the such expectations of man in his humanity, to go ahead and turn the other cheek, to give up his coat when his cloak had been taken from him, to um, always go the second mile always to go ahead and to try to work out in practice and in one's life the kind of things that 
Jesus was talking about in his Sermon on the Mount and in his teaching. As a matter of fact, the whole message of the New Testament was that of universality, that um, all men were brothers, that God willed that all men be saved, that all men become new men under this new dispensation. So this has been the teaching, and a hard teaching, and certainly one of complete nonviolence. You begin to examine your conscience, and you see how often you yourself are guilty of aggression and bringing out aggressions in others. Very often, even in talking about these things, you arouse aggressiveness on the part of those who hear you. It's very difficult to go ahead and present uh, talk of this kind without, uh, without antagonizing. It is controversial because it uh, deals with the very issues that we're suffering from today. The poverty program on the one hand and the war program on the other. The poverty program with its cut, as the New York Times said yesterday, of a quarter of a billion dollars in its uh, fund, poverty fund. Maybe a billion is allotted for the poverty program, 85 billions for the defense program. A terrible and shocking contrast between the works of mercy and the works of war. Dorothy Day, born in 1897, came of age in the 1910s when she was drawn to the cultural vibrancy and progressive politics of early 20th century New York City. It was an exciting time of discovery for an idealistic teenager. She had a, a very strong presence of God when she was a, a young girl, and um, this continued all the way through when she was in her teens and her 20s. She was very much involved with the radical and bohemian literary circles of New York City in the 19, from 1916 to, to um, the end of the 1920s. As you wrote, atheism, anarchism, socialism, vegetarianism, women's rights, free love, free speech, free thought... It was all in the air. Yes, it was. Um, it was quite an extraordinary time. And I think it's unfortunate that we've forgotten about it. I think that it's it was overshadowed by uh, the stock market crash in 1929. But before then, it was an incredibly exciting time, I think, to, to be in, certainly in, to be in Greenwich Village in New York City, which is where she was living. Well, those of us who lived through the 60s had perhaps um, an echo of that feeling? Yes, I think so. Though for my grandmother, the 60s were quite painful. She did not uh, enjoy them as much as the rest of us did. <laughs> Therein lies a tale, I'm sure. Exploring the fascinating life of Dorothy Day, a journalist and leader of the Catholic Worker Movement. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on this segment, Dorothy Day, and to obtain audio downloads or CDs, please visit humanmedia.org. In preparing her 2017 memoir, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty, Kate Hennessy spent years talking with her mother, Tamar, the only child of Dorothy Day. 
She worked through family documents and reconstructed her own early encounters with her famous grandmother. What emerged is a very human portrait of Dorothy Day's complicated, passionate, dedicated life. She was born in Brooklyn when she was eight or so. The family moved out to the Bay Area, to Oakland. Um, they were in Oakland during the San Francisco earthquake, 1906, lost virtually everything. They, they then moved to Chicago, and um, they lived in Chicago until 1917, I believe. And they all moved back to New York City, and um, that's where she began her career as a journalist. And that was, of course, uh, during World War One, and during, during the period when a military draft began in the United States. And that figured prominently in Dorothy Day's uh, life and activism. Yes, it did. Um, she was writing, she first started writing for a socialist paper called the New York Call. And um, during that, she met a, a fellow writer who would eventually be, be known as Mike Gold. And uh, through Mike Gold, she was introduced to this whole um, radical generation, really, in New York City. And they were all being drafted. As you say, there was conscrip conscription happening. Well, it, it started to happen, I think, in 1917. And so it was a huge topic, and all, all these young men were just staying up all night long. What do we do? Do we join? Do we flee? Um, what do we do? And she became involved with an anti-conscription group, um, a group of Columbia students. Um, she also was working for The Masses, another a radical paper, and they were shut down for their views against um, anti-conscription. She was an absolute pacifist. Um, she said we have to trust Jesus when he says, you know, uh, love your enemies. Um, she said we just, we just have to do the best we can. There was always some sort of war going on. And um, she was very, as a journalist, she was very much interested in the news. She was always reading the paper every single day. I remember her reading the New York Times. So she was always very much aware of everything that's happening around the world in terms of war and the results of these wars and the continuation. Now that we are in the war, there are only two sides. And the time has come when every citizen must declare himself American or traitor. One war never ended. It was just it just seemed to go on and on. And so she was very much aware of this long view. Um, and I think that that was very difficult for um, a lot of Catholics, a lot of Catholic workers to understand, particularly with World War II, where it was so clear that there was a very clear enemy um, and we needed to fight. And, um, and she was always saying, well, we have to look at the larger view. I mean, Hitler didn't come out of nowhere. Um, this is a process that, that we keep going towards. You know, this is an uh, inevitable outcome of all the actions that we take beforehand. So we, we have to break that cycle. Um, and that, that was really hard. A, a lot of young men at the worker left at that time and joined. A lot of them became COs um, and worked Conscientious in, objectives. Yes, yes. And um, worked on farms or worked in um, hospitals. I mean, there, there was a, a lot of different ways that, that people could serve. A lot of the men um, worked in the ambulance services, um, and some men actually full-on joined some of the Catholic worker men. And she would publish their letters in the paper. So, I mean, she was very careful to keep 
these people within the family, even though there was grave differences in terms of what one's duty was. But she also said that you have to follow your conscience. Um, each person has to find out what their conscience is telling them and to follow that. And if that means going to war, then you do it. And did you inherit your grandmother's pacifism? Yes, I did. Even in the face of evil? Yes, I do. And it's, that's a really hard thing to explain. Um, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of mysteries in life. <laughs> and what really interests me, I think, in many ways is we keep insisting that we know we have the solutions, we have the answers. Um, and war as, a, as an answer, as a solution, I think just leads us uh, you know, down a road that just gets worse and worse and worse. I don't see it as solving any problems. It gets more and more dangerous as we become better and better at making weapons. Better and better. Dorothy Day was an intimate of several remarkable literary figures, including Eugene O'Neill, the great American playwright, Malcolm Cowley, the novelist and literary critic, and at one point, the poet Hart Crane. With Jean O'Neill, she would stroll along the East Side waterfront, where he would explain to her the importance of listening to people's stories and of honoring their dignity. She always spoke of uh literary influences. She always spoke of the books that she was reading. It was very influential on my life to grow up with that. Um, it really, these authors were part of her daily life, um, particularly, um, I'm speaking of authors that she didn't know, but you know, Dostoevsky was a very important person for her, a writer. She also had this genius of being able to meet great people. And so it's no surprise to me that she became very good friends with Eugene O'Neill. Um, she just had this way, even though she was 20 years old, she was very young. She was the youngest of that crowd. Um, there was something about her that, that I think really, she, she was so able to focus in on very interesting people. And they, you know, responded to that. I think she was also very interesting in herself. Um, I think we can all agree upon that. We were still talking about her, you know, 30 years after her death, more, but 35 th years after her death. That must be her journalistic instinct to be able to focus in on very interesting people. I think so. But I think it's also, it goes deeper than that. I think she just had this great fascination with people. Um, she loved to hear their stories. And that was one of the 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 ways in which I think people who came for help just really responded to her is that she just wanted to hear their stories. You know, she wanted to hear, where did you come from? What, you know, um, how did you And that was genuine. Here? It was genuine, and people really responded to that. She could draw, my mother would say, she could draw out, you know, anyone, the, the most, um, you know, fierce of people that would show up. They would just melt and, and start speaking to her. And what do you think underlay that? I think there's a genuine when there is a genuine interest um, in a person when someone realizes that that they are truly listening um, and truly open in a non-judgmental way. Just I, I want to hear your story. This fascinates me. Please tell me. I think that that's that just opens people's hearts. 
And do you think that that was integrated with her um, willingness and ability to accept people regardless of whatever state of disrepair they might be in? I think so. I mean, she always, um, you know, she said always that the way that she could see God was in people's faces, particularly people who are suffering. Um, so I think that, that to her, that was her, it was almost like a spiritual connection um, at, at one level, in addition to the personal connection. Um, and also, you know, she was so, both my mother and my grandmother were so accepting of everyone. Um, well, my, my grandmother could be quite judgmental. I mean, people would take a wrong step and she would tell them. But this, this um, just accepting whoever came in, and I think that was one of the, the extraordinary um, geniuses of the Catholic worker is that it was from the get-go, it was so accepting of, of whoever showed up at the door. And, I mean, there were some very difficult people, but both my mother and my grandmother just had this uh, wonderful ability to, to, um, to be with the most difficult of folks. I want to ask about being with difficult people, because if you are in a service setting where people who are needy, who may be addicted, who may be struggling with issues of homelessness, who may be facing mental illness, are showing up, there is going to be a certain incidence of difficult people that one encounters. I think the one word that jumped out at me, that, that list of <laughs> ways people can be difficult, is the word needy. Um, I think that that probably was the most difficult aspect for both my mother and my grandmother, is facing people's needs, much more so than, let's say, mental illness or, or um, physical illness or um, even violence, that this, um, this pure naked need that they often were in the direct line of fire was the the greatest difficulty so how do you how do you respond to that need i think you know neither one of them really ever sorted that out completely um and i think it's not only i think we all kind of have this level of neediness um and how we we deal with it whether we think we are the the people um giving to others or receiving, I, you know, I, I think we all kind of are, it's, it's an equal opportunity um, state of mind, neediness. and Me, um, Meaning that at some level we're all vulnerable and fragile? Yes, yes. And I think that's a really important thing to remember. Um, I talk a lot to college students, and, um, and there's a real, I mean, it's a wonderful sense of, you know, they want to go out and do good in the world. And um, which is, you know, it's wonderful. I don't want to 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 um, discourage them from that. But I think it really we have to start from position that people are going to give to us in these situations um, and that we have to always be open to that, that it's not a, a situation of us, you know, always helping the other person. I think that that um, you won't get far um, a lot of, you know, people who are desperate, people who come to the Catholic worker are very often very smart people and um, very clued into what my mother would call, you know, do good 
you know, do-gooders. Um, she, she would kind of spit that term out, do-gooders. Um, so what is, what's the difference between, a, you know, someone who's trying to help and a do-gooder? And I think that's that, um, that uh, inner understanding of yourself and your needs and what people are giving to you. I think that's absolutely essential in doing this kind of work. Kate Hennessy, granddaughter of the late Catholic worker leader Dorothy Day. She's author of a family memoir, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Doug Sugertz. Editorial assistance from David Cruz, Ken Rogers, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Dorothy Day, Part 1, is Humankind Program number 254. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org, and at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.